You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, and we each have about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we cover the five biggest stories in manufacturing and the implications they have on the industry going forward. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by giving us a pod re- positive review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. Finally, to email the podcast, you can reach us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. How are you guys doing today? David, I'm doing especially awesome because last night, the Houston Ford High School boys basketball team brought home the first state championship in school history. So it is a great day to be a Falcon. <laughs> Whoa. That is awesome. an incredible achievement. How big is Houston Ford? Uh, we're about 1,200 strong. Whoa. Um, I don't live there anymore. My hometown where I went to high school, where I grew up. But awesome seeing the boys uh, lift the gold ball last night. Well, congratulations to the Falcons. That's yeah, awesome. that was cool. It's, I mean, it's good that they actually get to play sports. I know that those are still shut down in places. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be tough. They all had the masks on and stuff. But um, yeah, got it through. Anna, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. And wondering where Jeff was on his high school basketball team. What were you doing back there? Just when not, I was in high not school, winning, not winning state, or we, um, yeah, I never made it out of regionals. Oh. We, um, we were always like a 500 type team. So I come from like a historically, a historic failure at sports of a high school. <laughs> like uh, we made ESPN one year because we were historically bad in a football game. Highlights, <laughs> personal highlights. Anyway, let's jump into the top stories in the manufacturing industry and move beyond personal failures and the achievements of a new generation. We can come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) I hope to. Uh, The fifth most popular story on our websites this week, missile firing missile fights incoming airstrikes. Excuse me. This week, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, awarded $22 million in contracts to General Atomics, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman. The money is part of the Longshot program, which hopes to develop an air-launched combat drone and its own arsenal of air-to-air missiles. Basically, the hope is to develop a frontline UAV that can take the fight to incoming airstrikes. Longshot could also keep piloted fighter jets in reserve for follow-up attacks, minimizing pilot risk. Jeff, your thoughts on the story? First of all, DARPA is amazing. Like, I mean, as far as, especially for a government agency... I mean, they do some pretty incredible stuff. And it's not just military aerospace. I mean, it goes into materials and a lot of other different really cool stuff. Um, the concept, I mean, don't you kind of wonder, why don't we think about this sooner? Mm. Like sending the missile out to hit the missile instead of fighter planes and, and all that. So, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty incredible concept. And I think it sort of is building on everything that's um, been brought about by the success of the drones and the unmanned aerial uh, vehicles in terms of uh, taking human beings sort of out of the, the process or out of harm's way, if you will, um, and sort of minimizing potential casualties that way. So I think, um, you know, it, it builds definitely on that. It's still in the prototyping phase. We haven't, we're not there yet. But the overall technology, um, if finalized, if it comes to fruition, would be pretty amazing. Um, not going real deep here. I know this could be a whole nother conversation, but... At some point, though, I think we do have to look a little bit at the amount of unmanned weaponry that we're kind of putting out there or strategies behind unmanned um, approaches simply because it seems to be a much easier way potentially to justify a lot of these military actions. 
because there's not a human being involved. So you don't mm -hmm. have to worry about those types of reports coming out and what was the true cost. Well, it is still hundreds of millions of dollars in equipment, but there wasn't any lives lost, well, on our side. Okay. Right. Um, so it's, it's an interesting defensive approach. And in other words, when you're looking at a missile, uh, meeting an incoming missile head-on before it gets into uh, a critical airspace. So. Yeah, I just want to echo your thoughts on DARPA. Pretty much anything coming out of that agency is incredible. And, I mean, talk about this being at the prototype phase. I think that's where everything is at DARPA yeah. Pro or even just, you know, concept phase. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, it, it's not just safer for pilots uh, because, you know, it can get closer. Um, oh, but because it can get closer to the threat, it can make the missiles more effective and eventually, Longshot will make a <clears throat> will make and fly a full scale full scale air launched demonstration cap system capable of controlled flight before, during, and after weapon ejection under operational conditions. So, eventually, the plan is to make at least a full scale prototype of this. Uh, Anna, your thoughts on the drones? Yeah, really interesting. I mean, anything described as being able to increase the survivability of anything. Mm -hmm. um, Sounds like a benefit, right? <clears throat> I just uh, concluded a Jimmy Stewart biography um, because the pandemic has just galvanized uh, the nerdiness uh, <laughs> that already existed. It's just getting worse and worse. Uh, but anyway, I, you know, if you think about some of the wartime scenarios um, where these fighter pilots, like in World War II, just the the massive casualties that resulted from some of those, um, I think. You know, this sounds like a a, a win for, for the military. Um, and I thought it was interesting, too. You know, a few weeks back, we talked about drones and the challenges in policing them in more like consumer applications. But this does show that some of the military applications and how drones can be much more than just like the future of Amazon deliveries or how hobbyists spy on you in your backyard. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't uh, be the level of threat they were thinking about, but you know, to use something like this to take out, you know, uh, drones in uh, occupying restricted airspace and stuff like that, you know, that could be a potential uh, solution for that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully not necessary, <laughs> but yeah. likely. Um, the fourth most popular story on the websites this week was about a sandwich manufacturer that burned down in Iowa. On Saturday, February 27th, Pride of Iowa's food manufacturing facility burned to the ground in Marengo, Iowa. The company is a 40-year-old family-owned business that makes sandwiches, primarily for convenience stores, hospitals, schools, prisons, and vending companies. Not sure why I pointed at you for prisons. I was going to say, what was that about? <laughs> not sure. Not sure. That's a subconscious thing we're just going to work with later. Firefighters struggled with the blaze because the facility was recently remodeled and the department never received an updated floor plan. The offices, production floor, and warehouse were a total loss. However, however, they brought in an, ex an excavator to separate the production facility from the freezer, which was saved. The facility was closed when the fire broke out and no one was injured. The company has about 75 employees who make 600,000 sandwiches every week, and the cause is still under investigation, but the fire likely caused, started in the office. Uh, Jeff, your thoughts on this incident? Yeah, really sad story. You know, um, they just done a bunch of remodeling there, which was actually part of the issue. Um, the fire department, it's a small town. It's like 2,500 people, I believe, in the town. So probably a volunteer type fire department. They didn't have a lot of understanding of the internal structure of the, of the remodel of the building. So it kind of delayed their efforts and it made it a little bit more difficult. 
And I guess the first thing that that I looked at is we talk so much about the Internet of Things and an industrial application. And with a lot of these technologies actually starting in manufacturing and then branching out from there because they can prove their reliability and their capabilities in such a demanding setting, then they can also be used elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And when you think about things um, in terms of connectivity and being able to share data and information here, if there was an electronic version of this this floor plan, this, this a blueprint of it that could be shared electronically, you'd think potentially the firefighters could have pulled this up on a on a mobile device, mm-hmm. had a better idea what they were facing going in, and it may have been able to save more of the building. So um, it's hard because when we look at that type of technology, it is an investment. There's training, um, there's implementation costs, all of that stuff. But in this instance, I mean, you're looking at a place that employs 75 people in a small town and has a much bigger effect beyond that. I mean, definitely a small town indeed. Like, uh, I mean, now that you brought the level of Houstonsford at 1,200 up, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this was still a population of like 2,500 people, and it was a volunteer fire department that actually had to call in another fire department, and it still took five hours and 25 firefighters to put it out. Um, so, yeah, just the most information possible probably would have been a benefit for them. Uh, Anna, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I said no sad safety stories this week. So I'm glad that this one didn't result in any fatalities, considering the plant was closed at the time of the fire, though it's clearly tragic how this plant was decimated. Mm -hmm. And the local news footage shows all these loaves of bread just like wet and ruined. And it was very, ugh. Anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, your life's work. This is a family-owned business. But anyway, following the incident, um, one of those local news outlets interviewed the company's president, um, Zach Woods, and even... He was flabbergasted, um, saying that, quote, I mean, we're making sandwiches here. We ain't got diesel tanks. Mm-hmm. And a few days after the incident, it sounded like the fire department, um, who described the fire as well underway when they arrived that night, still isn't any closer to knowing what caused it. Mm-hmm. And they said it was so bad that they were playing catch up the entire time as soon as they got there. Uh, but according to the NFPA... Firefighters respond to an average of 37,000 fires per year at industrial facilities. Wow. Right, right. I know. That was an estimate that kind of blew my mind, actually. Um, most of them take place outside. Mm. But um, the annual property damage assumed is about $1.2 billion a year in direct property damage. But for what it's worth, um, NFPA says that electrical distribution and lighting equipment were the leading cause of structure fires in industrial properties. And um, those accounted for almost a quarter of the total. And they added that heating systems caused about 14% of manufacturer fires. So if anyone out there is losing sleep over the risk, um, you know, following the story, I would start, start there. You know, those are the, the top areas uh, for consideration when it comes to safety risk. It sounds like according to the NFPA, what were those two areas? So um, electrical distribution and lighting equipment um, as well as heating systems. Okay. Just sort of reinforcing the point of having, you know, quality maintenance staff on hand as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, just, uh, oh, just potentially implementing some rather cost-effective sensing um, technologies as well. Uh, well, I just, I, I guess without digging too deep into it, I was kind of curious as to like what sort of scale of operation it was. I mean that, yeah, they were making more than a half million sandwiches a month, but I was interested to know, is it, is this just an assembly line? Is there some sort of automation in there? And, uh, you know, at what point do sandwich makers become sandwich manufacturers? You know, uh, just curious. Subway qualifies as a sandwich manufacturer. 
Oh, yeah. uh, I think of, they're called sandwich artists. They're really called sandwich artists? At Subway, yeah. Yeah. Anytime I have been at a Subway, I did not meet an artist. Oh, it's all for interpretation. That's why yes. they're artists, David. Yeah. yeah. I would say maybe a novice. Maybe a novice is a little strong wow. with that mayo. Sandwich hobbyist. Yeah, yeah sandwich hobbyist. He obviously didn't get it. Yeah. You didn't understand there. No, he didn't have he didn't feel the passion. Um I did note that the owner said that right now operations are at a standstill, but they're looking for a temporary space, which also sort of reinforced that maybe there wasn't a lot of equipment on hand. They just, you know, need a place to set up an assembly line. And uh but the plan is to build in the town. So at least those uh jobs hopefully won't be lost in the small town mm-hmm. for good. That's good. The third most popular story this week. <clears throat> SpaceX Starship lands and then explodes again. (laughs) Last Wednesday, SpaceX successfully landed its futuristic Starship after a six and a half minute test flight. It was just enough time for a SpaceX commentator to say, third time's a charm, and then they cut the feed. The test, however, was not done as Starship 10 exploded on the landing pad with enough force that the craft was launched back into the air and not... You know, it was only there briefly. The two previous test flights also crash-landed in fireballs. The Starship 10 was a full-scale prototype of the craft slated to bring people to the moon and eventually Mars. In tradition, traditional Muskian fashion, the SpaceX CEO gave SN10 a farewell with a tweet. He also thanked the staff for their hard work. Anna, <laughs> your thoughts? On the latest explosion at SpaceX. I liked Muskian. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just such, it was a Muskian tweet. I know, it was. R.I.P. Yes. S.N. 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know, exactly. I mean, he would just be so like cavalier about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for like five weeks and this is our second exploding <laughs> SpaceX ship. <laughs> Slow down. Right. Can't keep up. No, I mean, once again, this, <clears throat> you know, this fortunately was an explosion that will offer some insights for SpaceX as they continue development of these rockets and no one appears to have been harmed. So I know the last time we discussed this, I said that people have the stamina for a few more explosions before the memes start coming out. And then we collectively talk ourselves out of the idea of consumer space travel, Mm -hmm. but like over under on what that number is. (laughs) 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 I mean, as I've mentioned, I'm already out. Like I don't even like take showers during thunderstorms. I'm there's no way I'm going to space ever but um but like at, yeah at what point or you know like if maybe our appetite for space travel could, survives but at the expense of spacex i don't know is anyone really like brand loyal at this point do we start like looking in other areas um i don't know at what point this becomes like a black mark on on the program or mm-hmm. if we just have a, a lot of appetite yet to continue to absorb these kinds of incidents jeff uh your thoughts on colonizing space and uh the flash burning of money happening in texas (laughs) jeff yeah do you have a loyalty to a certain um rocket ship (laughs) um i'm out there you know i can be convinced yeah Uh, i'm a free agent right now sure sure. so i'm 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 open to pitches you know at at some point though spacex cannot be that nonchalant about this stuff Um. i understand this is part of their message right it's sort of part of their marketing Musk is being this cool explorer entrepreneur guy, but he can also afford to do that because it's a private company right now. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, maybe not, maybe he isn't worried about it, but at some point, if they ever want to go public and get an infusion of funds into SpaceX, if they're going to take it to the next level, 
that would be what would happen. And when that happens, everything gets opened up and you have to be more forthcoming about things. I'm not sure a lot of shareholders are going to be super nonchalant <laughs> about, you know, a hundred million dollar rocket blowing up. Oh yeah. So, and you know, and it's interesting because I think there's also more competition coming. We talked about Bezos and Blue Origin. You got um, Branson out there and what he's trying to do with Virgin Orbit. Um, and also earlier, it was kind of interesting the timing because earlier this week, there's actually another company called Rocket Lab and mm-hmm. they're actually going public. Okay. Now, right now the company there, they've, they've got an established base. They've launched like a hundred different satellites for different governments and private companies um, right now, they're valued at about $4.1 billion. To put that in perspective, SpaceX is valued at about $36 billion. So much smaller scale at this point. But again, they're out there now. They're going to be getting an infusion of funds. They're going to have people investing in their business, and they're going to be very transparent in what they're doing. So there's going to be more pressure, you would think, for a higher level of success. They're not going to be able to blow off high-profile explosions of very expensive pieces of equipment. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see how that impacts some of these bigger names that we know of who right now are just, they can afford to funnel a lot of money into this and now be as anxious about some of these things falling apart. No, uh, on the cost, SpaceX has said that this specific Starship program uh, was previously estimated to cost about $5 billion just to develop this specific craft. Whoa. So not sure how much of that has gone into three explosions so far, but I feel like they're into it. Um, Musk is also still very confident that Starship will be safe enough for humans in 2023. And when I wrote that, I'm just like, oh, that seems really far away. And it's not. That is just around the corner. Now, I don't know if either of you guys saw the article or um, this woman, uh, Shannon Sterone uh, on CNBC, but she wrote this article for The Atlantic that says Mars is a hellhole. And basically, you know, that's why I brought up uh, colonizing space is because uh, she basically calls Musk a flag planter, not necessarily, uh, you know, that we're going to be colonizing uh, these places. And uh, I just wanted to say the one thing that uh, she called it, Mars is a beautiful hellhole, but a hellhole nonetheless that will kill you in myriad ways. Your blood boiling fizzing up like a can of soda, dying from muscle deterioration, freezing to death, you have a lot of options. No ba- <laughs> She wanted to stress that there's no backup planet, nowhere else to go. You can die on the moon in other ways, but basically you should stick around here, die on Earth, because your odds are better. So two points, Anna, preferred way to die, blood boiling or muscle deterioration, I suppose freezing to death is probably the most glamorous option. And uh, your thoughts on, you know, are we just planting flags here or is there a real uh, colonization plan in the future? I mean, I, you know, fair point. There's more to this than just building a rocket, right? But mm-hmm. um, can't we just tackle climate change and just stay here? As Are we just like past that? We're just like, mm, forget it. It's too late. Mm-hmm. For Earth, let's just just move on and try to um, try to do something else. That should be easier. Yeah, I don't think I'm on board with that. No. Yeah, saving life on this one rather than trying to restart or bring life to a dead one. Um, Jeff. Well, first of all, David, congratulations on finding the Debbie Downer 
of uh, space exploration. That's she's that's well no done. downer, man. Yeah. She uh, she is excited and uh, <laughs> about finding cruel and unusual ways for people to perish in space. Yeah, well, it's just uh, I thought that she brought a unique perspective where it's just you know people think like you know and it's she said it's an inherently human condition to be able to like to think that we can uh, go out into the great beyond and set up shop somewhere else. You know, it's just uh, as humans we want to go and start anew. Um, and, uh, she wasn't necessarily a downer. I think she was more of a realist just like, because I like to talk casually, just, you know, you know, I'll go to Mars. Hey, I'll bring one kid, the favorite. Uh, (laughs) and then she's like, no, no, you won't. You'll freeze to death and your son's blood will boil and everyone will be sad. And you know, every once in a while you need that little slap (laughs) on the face. (laughs) Um, I think the other thing though, part of this, I mean, Bezos and uh, Musk and Branson, they get headlines because they talk about space tourism, but really there's a big market here. And that is um, uh, private industry coming in and doing satellite launches and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And that's really where SpaceX is making their money, obviously, right now. And they're making a lot of money. Yeah. But I think, again, it's easy for Musk to say, eh, you know, we blew $5 billion on this thing. It's not a big deal. He can say whatever he wants to. Yeah. At this point, there's nobody who's going to be able to prove him wrong because, again, Whatever their numbers are, and however he wants to um, manipulate them, or p- forecast them, or project them, or share, he can. There's no—I mean, it's all kind of clouded right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, that will change. Now, he, maybe he's figuring it all out. Again, SpaceX has been extremely successful in terms of the money that they've raised. You know, I think uh, Forbes is estimating they made over a billion dollars working with NASA last year, essentially, in mm-hmm. some of those launches. So. They're doing some things right, but it's it's just there's a there's a market evolution here that's going to take place where at some point this is going to be a he can't just blow this off that this stuff isn't working, right? No, I I agree that uh, and we talked a little bit about it last week about how I do feel like you know not necessarily colonizing Mars, but like a lot of this has to do with growing the SpaceX brand for you know very real money making uh, or commercialistic pursuits like. Um, Launching satellites. Internet, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, uh, what is it, Starlink, Starlink you know, global, yeah. yeah. That has, could have tremendous impact on the world. Um, so we'll write about it, it'll be popular, and we can talk about Musk again next week. Hmm. <laughs> um, our second most popular story this week, uh, Lockheed Martin is shuttering a 90-year-old plant. On Friday, February 26th, Lockheed announced plans to close a 90-year-old plant in Middle River, Maryland, to cut costs and increase efficiency a story we've heard many times before. The plant has 465 workers who make electronic systems used in Navy warship launches. The defense contractor will close the facility in two years and workers have the option of relocating to another facility or working remotely. The plant plant dates back to 1928 and at one point had tens of thousands of employees and made bombers during World War II. Anna, at least there's sort of a silver lining is that it seems like they have a chance to relocate workers. Yeah. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe that's the silver lining. There might be another one. Um, this plant has had a tumultuous history. Mm -hmm. It's insane to even imagine a plant employing like 53,000 workers, but that's the way it's characterized referring to Lockheed's bomber production during world war II, as you mentioned. Uh, But this closure isn't its first challenge. And the Baltimore Sun reported that the plant was slated to close in 2010, actually, as well. 
uh, before production briefly restarted and then wound down again in 2014, which was when Lockheed then landed a $235 million order from the Navy to produce launchers for 10 Arleigh Burke class destroyers. And it retooled the facility in 2016, um, creating 80 new tools to help speed up production. But uh, these launchers were described at the time as so versatile that they were characterized as the Swiss army knife of the Navy, which is a weird a Swiss army knife of the Navy. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that is weird. Um, <laughs> but I think some are hoping that another contract can fall to Lockheed here and maybe save this plant. Uh, which the town was basically built around. And with a new administration in play, there are some unknowns there, of course, and the two-year timeline maybe keeps some hope alive. But, of course, this is very disruptive for those employees in Middle River. But you wonder if, you know, because uh, Lockheed brought it back from the brink multiple times in the last decade, Mm -hmm. and this product that they produce is not only used by the U.S. military, but um, foreign militaries as well, that maybe in a two-year time period, something, you know, some kind of Hail Mary falls into place there and they can keep it, it going, but I don't know. Jeff, is a Hail Mary possible? I think so. I mean, it's really interesting when you look at, first of all, the work that they were doing at the plant. I mean, we ran a story last week talking about the development of uh, vessels that the Navy can launch onto shore. Smaller mm-hmm. ones, you know, uh, for, for smaller uh, sort of group tactics. And that's a lot of what the work they were doing here for was for launching those types of crafts and, and developing automation and controls for those mm-hmm. types of crafts. So it's interesting. Uh, it's also in, in going through and looking at a lot of the remarks around this plant closure, there was an uncommon amount of goodwill from the state of Maryland. Like yeah. they were not really coming after Lockheed because Lockheed obviously – they're based out of Bethesda, Maryland. They employ a lot of people in that state. So it almost seemed like Maryland was saying, all right, we're going to give you this one. We, we get it. You gave <laughs> yeah. us you, you gave us two years. We appreciate that. But I think the thing that could help this particular facility is there is an industrial workforce base mm-hmm. there already. The plant has been there so long. It employs so many people. And the infrastructure is actually really good. That's one of the points that they made in the, the, the statement as well. It's got rail. It's got an airfield. Yeah. Um, it's got, you know, it's not far from Baltimore, so you also have port access. So the infrastructure for the facility is good. They've got two years potentially to fill it if there isn't something that, that comes about uh, within Boeing or from someplace else. So I think potentially there is some positives, plus those employees are being offered opportunities to go someplace else within sort of the Lockheed family. Yeah. So as far as plant closures go, there's maybe a little bit more positive news or some positive indicators coming out of this one as opposed to some of the others we've discussed and covered where it's it's tragic because when this for when I first saw this and saw a look at the area that we were talking about my first thought was it was kind of like the automotive plants down in Janesville here Janesville, yeah exactly. and where those places pulled out one pulled out after another and it really decimated the community and I think there's more potential and optimism uh, in in this uh, situation yeah the only thing I saw that was potentially troubling was that um, when you have a facility that's been around this long, uh, you wind up with a lot of problems, primarily with um, what's going into the environment. Uh, so in the late 1990s, Lockheed Martin started doing environmental studies in the area after possible contamination was discovered that was tied to the Glenn L. Martin Company, the old aircraft manufacturer that dates back to 1928. Uh, basically, Lockheed has tested more than 500 soil, groundwater, and creek locations and found chemicals used in old industrial operations, solvents, petroleum, metals, and PCBs. While they don't pose a risk to employees or residents in the community, according to the company, uh, 
The okay. company recently entered the Maryland Department of Environment's Voluntary Cleanup Program, which will help ensure that the health and safety of the future site users and protect the environment. So that was another thing where we were talking about getting a possible new tenant um, is that maybe there's some liability there, but it sounds like at least both the state and the company are willing to do whatever kind of remediation it's going to take uh, to fix it up. Yeah. Uh, one of the things is that how they discovered it was they were actually dig- – it was kind of like uh, they found like a, a local landfill where like Glen L. Martin was just kind of dumping all their garbage into a trench, sort of covered it. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, – a. It was difficult to it was difficult to read. Yeah, you can almost like see the black and white footage and something glowing in the ground mm. type of. Uh, <laughs> it was yeah. actually uh, the two things they listed were uh, papers in chi- in China. I was like, so they just buried a bunch of plates. Like, anyway, uh, it was a different time back then. It was a different time. <laughs> the top story this week uh, was one of the most expensive recalls in history. Hyundai recently recalled only 82,000 vehicles. So when it comes to auto recalls, it's not that high. For example, GM recently had to recall 7 million vehicles over airbag problems and took a 1.1 billion hit as a result. However, experts say Hyundai's new recall will cost much more per vehicle, and it could wind up as one of the most expensive recalls in history. There have been 15 reports of battery fires, many in Hyundai electric vehicles that were shut off and empty. No, en- no injuries have been reported as of now, but the company had a study that determined the LG-produced batteries were defective and could short-circuit. Thus, Hyundai has determined they must replace the entire battery in each of these recalled vehicles. It works out to about $11,000 per vehicle in costs an estimated $900 million in total costs. As a comparison, GM's airbag problem cost just $157 per vehicle. Anna, your thoughts on the story? Yeah, so I think this story really takes a look at the cost implications for automakers as they switch to EVs, mm-hmm. um, especially as it relates to recall costs. But there are sort of two outcomes here. So the initial report about Hyundai's recall refers to replacing this entire battery, which is pretty dramatic. And the technology is new, so $11,000 per vehicle is pretty nauseating. But any other time in the arc of this technology, it's not going to cost that much, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this maybe sound, you know, the story makes it sound worse than it is. The recall costs will, of course, be initially higher as it is with any new tech. I mean, we saw this when high-tech electronics became standard within vehicles. So like, Cost per vehicle went up for consumers. Uh, Reliability rankings went down because there were so many more components in play and bugs had to be worked out. So, I mean, we're still seeing that. I think it was Mercedes, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that just issued a recall because their geolocation tech was malfunctioning and they could send first responders accidentally to the wrong place in the event of an accident. (laughs) I mean, you didn't have that back in the Don Draper 1960s when it was just a chassis and wheels and an engine and some windshield wipers. So I I don't know, from a consumer's perspective, it's interesting to note that we have just sort of eaten those extra costs that come back on us. I think presumably because the value of these components is worth it to us. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, this past year, despite the pandemic, the average price of a new car was higher than it's ever been in history. 
Um, but of course, it's worth mentioning that the long-term implications are different, um, which is that EVs actually have fewer components overall. So ironing out the battery issues in the short term will probably turn this cost center pretty quickly into hopefully what is it like a lower risk endeavor for these automakers. So I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, it's terrible now, but I don't think these kind of recalls look the same in one, two, three years, you know? Right. Uh, Jeff, who do you think is going to pay for it? I know that uh, Hyundai is fighting LG as to uh, who's going to cover the cost. Uh, what are your thoughts on the story? I think, I mean, the whole LG connection is what caught my eye. Because mm-hmm. it's the second time in three weeks we've talked about LG and their their role in a pretty um, important or substantial automotive development. You know, we talked about them a couple of weeks ago because they were part of a, a labor dispute with, an, I believe it was a, another Korean company, um, over workers and proprietary information. And it actually led to the potential shutdown of a Tennessee facility that was going to be producing electric vehicles um, for um, um, VW. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Thank yeah, you. VW and Ford. So yeah. we look at that LG right now, depending on what numbers you look at, probably the second or third largest electric vehicle battery maker in the world. And how is this, however they come out of this, and that's kind of for the courts to decide and, and looking at things, but it's you wonder how it's going to make people look at these electric battery suppliers because there's a handful of big ones out there right now. Panasonic's another one. There's another Chinese firm, um, a couple actually. But LG has seen the most growth because they have been taking on a lot of this OE business. So how trustworthy are they going to be? How much is that going to impact their growth? And then if you look at people who are naysayers of electric vehicle growth or usage overall, are they going to be able to point to these guys and basically say, well, this is one of the problems here. The technology, while it's great and it's proven in a certain respect, there's still problems with fires. Tesla had issues with battery fires. Right. Okay? And they're working with Panasonic, roughly the, you know, the largest EV battery supplier. So I think that's what's going to be the interesting takeaway from this story. How is Hyundai going to deal with somebody that, number one, they do need. They desperately need these guys to make their batteries because there's not a lot of options. But at the same time, if they're doing something wrong, does this mean, is this a short-term fix? Is this a long-term fix? How does this affect their supply chain for obviously a critical part of their product line going forward? That also raises an interesting question about like, I mean, I think we've all had recalls on our vehicles where, you know, I've had sensors in our car. I've had the airbags, obviously, because I think everyone had their airbag. But I mean, those were pretty much, you know, a couple hours. How long is your car going to be out of commission if they need to replace the elect- battery in your electric vehicle? I mean, there's... Essentially, those are on the chassis, right? I mean, they're going to have to take the whole top off. Well, they're huge and they're expensive. I mean, what do we could $11,000? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, pull the engine out of your car right now. It's yeah, <laughs> they're going to need 82,000 loaders yeah. right now. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think it opens up a whole list of things because then it's, okay, it's LG, right? Mm-hmm. But then LG is working with suppliers as well. How far does this trickle down? Yeah. And how big of an impact does it have, not just on for this one automaker, but sort of the whole EV industry potentially. Well, and it was interesting too, those two, um, Hyundai and and LG were both emphatic that it was not their fault. Oh yeah. (laughs) And they really, I mean, aggressively pointed the finger at each other. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how this ends because there was no feeling at this point that we were like in this together. Well, and I mean, at, uh, what is it? $900 million potentially, Mm -hmm. uh, that actually wouldn't put it in the top 10 of recalls in overall. So I looked up the top 10 recalls and what they cost. And this is based on Kiplinger's uh, list from March, 2018. I just wanted you guys to guess 
Like, of the top 10, first of all, 9 out of 10, as of 2018, were from the last 20 years. And actually, I think more recent. Um, And the GM recall before this would actually wind up number 9 and drop the one that's from the 80s out of the list. So all these, the 10 most like costly recalls would all come from within the last 20 years, let's say 16 years. I mean, does that say something about also, is it something more about the technologies that, that, that is going into products? Is that talking more about how fast things are coming to market these days? And can you guys list that top 10? <laughs> yeah, list the top 10. Yeah. Are they lumping together Takata? Takata's number one, far okay. and away. Yeah, the Takata airbag recall in 2008 and is still 24 billion and counting. I mean, 24 billion? 24 billion. So did 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 they break it down cuz obviously the the you know this Hyundai recall is being called one of the most expensive on a per item basis, right? Like the right. per vehicle cost of of this recall. Did they say what the top is there a more expensive per vehicle cost recall? I'm just curious. No, I didn't see anything on that. This is just overall cost of the recall. Sure. Um, because one of the top ones is the uh, actually the one that would fall out of the top ten is the Tylenol Johnson and Johnson recall from 1982, which cost a hundred million dollars. But I'm assuming per item, <laughs> that's not as uh, heavy of a burden. And what's um, in 1982 dollars? What is that? <laughs> I believe the same. No. <laughs> um, so, Jeff, is this more a point of uh, – is this a problem with product development and rushing things to market, or is this just because we're tracking it more? I think it's twofold. Yeah. I think, first of all, you've got you know NHTSA out there, the uh, Transportation um, Safety Authority mm-hmm. Agency. They're under more pressure from consumer groups to make sure vehicles are safer. You know, ever since all that stuff was at the Pinto or whatever, uh, yeah. Uh, even though some of that was, ended up being fabricated, it just drew people's attention to wanting vehicles to be safer as possible. So there's more pressure there, more regulatory pressure being applied. So we're finding more stuff, which yeah. is good. The other part of it, I think, is when you look at all of the fuel um, efficiency standards that are being pushed onto automotive manufacturers, which I don't think is a bad thing, but all of that is cr- forcing vehicle design become more efficient. Mm-hmm. They want it to be lighter. They want it to be more compact so it can be more fuel efficient. Well, when you cram more stuff into a tighter space, mm-hmm. things are going to break. Yeah. And I think that's part of this as well. Now, does that mean the quality controls are beyond automakers to avoid these things? Of course not. I mean, we've seen plenty of shortcuts, diesel gate. Um, Number two. <laughs> that Number two. <laughs> can still, that, it's still, it's not beyond the automotive engineering community to get past this and, and to ensure that there's a high quality product and a safe product going on the road. But I think, again, there's just more regulatory pressure and there's more fuel efficiency pressure. Things are going to bust. Plus cars are lasting a lot longer. So mm-hmm. the more longer cars are on the road, the more chances you have to find something wrong. Um, so of the remaining, number nine, Peanut butter recall from 2009. Oh, yeah. A billion dollars. Toyota floor mats in 2010, mm. 3.2 billion. Uh, the Pfizer Bextra recall, which I was unfamiliar with, but that was the arthritis painkiller in 2005, uh, cost 3.3 billion. Is the GM ignition one on there? Number six. Are you looking at my talk? I am not. Number six GM ignition switch recall in 2014, $4.1 billion in ignition switches. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Samsung Galaxy Note recall from just a couple of years ago, 2016, $5.3 billion. The Firestone Tire and Ford mm-hmm. recall from 2000, $5.6 billion. I mean, 
anyway, uh, the Merc, well, I was just going to say like, you know, it was defective tires and just cost them like just in terms of a defective tire. And actually a lot of people lost their lives as a result of that one. Um, but like, that's a quicker fix. You know, you can change the tires. You don't have to take the car apart. Um, the Merck Viox recall in 2004 was $8.9 billion. And then yes, diesel gate with VW in 2015, 18.3 billion. Incredible. Incredible. Wow. Well, um, hopefully, Along with uh, Anna's calls for less, you know, disasters uh, and uh, safety accidents, maybe we could get less recalls. Although I feel like I get an email from the CSPC. Yeah, I don't know. If, I mean, personally, I don't know if I want less recalls. I mean, like, <laughs> you like, got to fix something. Yeah, no, less recalls because everyone's, everyone's. Oh, because everything is bad. good. Yeah. yeah, not just like willful ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> I just, just want to hear about it. Until I'm hospitalized as a result of it. Right, yeah. And then, Don't make me take my car into the dealership. That's too much work. Right? Just call the guy that's going to chase my ambulance. Mm. You know, he can sort it out for me. <laughs> so that moves us on to the next segment. In case you missed it, the lesser known stories from this week uh, that are still going to potentially make a big impact on the industry and our world going forward. Um, Anna, what was your story this week? Um, so the story I selected was about, um, Petaluma, California, Mm -hmm. a city in Northern California that plans to go carbon neutral and they have banned the development of any new gas stations within the city. And the ban is actually effective basically immediately after the council votes this month. So, um, uh, I just, the headline got me. Um, I think this decision kind of speaks to just how fast the move toward electric cars seems to be accelerating. Though I wonder if it sounds more progressive than it is. Um, I was kind of looking into it and the gas station industry has been changing dramatically over the years. And a report last year in CNBC described a market where gas stations were actually struggling with significant headwinds. And only one of those is of course the idea that gas use is starting to slow, especially Mm. in a place like California. But the other variables are interesting, like fewer people smoke cigarettes. Um, which is something that made gas station stops more frequent um, Mm. previously. And also people no longer stop and ask for directions, which is an interesting point. But when you think about your behavior on a driving trip now versus, say, 15 years ago, it is different. Like, you know, there was all those years of stopping to ask for directions. And then there was like two years of like printing a map from MapQuest. Oh, yeah. And then we all got smartphones. Yeah. Um, Those MapQuest years were we're good. Those are brutal. <laughs> like when you like picked up page three instead of page two and you had no idea. Oh, I know. And they were always out of date. Yep. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah. so the, the, the report basically said that gas stations that have convenience stores attached, um, that focus on like quality food and coffee are the ones that are thriving. Growth strategy really has very little to do with the gas gasoline side of the business. And I don't know, nobody's banning microwave burritos here. So well, it's like a notable step towards the city's goal of going carbon neutral. I'm not sure that this was exactly fertile soil for a petrol business to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, the pairing of the convenience store with the fueling option is so ingrained in the minds of Americans that, you know, any development there would need something, you know, charging stations or what have you. But Well, I was I was interested to see how big the city was, you know, because I thought maybe if it was a smaller town, that would make sense. But it's still, you know, 61,000 people mm-hmm. live there. Um Jeff, your thoughts on um, GPS and lung cancer killing the gas station? 
First of all, I was a fan of MapQuest. I liked it. I liked it. You know, I get Well, I mean, initially, so yeah, dumb. in hindsight, yeah, I loved it because mm-hmm. I could never get anywhere. I was so, you know, just challenged when it came to directions. But I mean, I think it did more harm than good. A lot of looking down. It served yeah. me well. Yeah. <laughs> it got you to O'Hare. <laughs> <laughs> got me actually a lot of places. I was doing a magazine where I had to talk to mobile tool dealers oh. who were in a lot of very rural areas. Mm-hmm. So MapQuest was huge. Um, I, I think overall, I, I just always think these are these should be market-based decisions. Let the consumer decide. Yeah. So I, I think this may be a situation where there's, in my opinion, from the outside, looking at a little bit more government, oh, uh, government yep. regulations we than, like, uh, than I'd want. But, Time stamp uh, it. Deregulation. Well, the, the bureaucrats aren't pounding through the wall to come get me this time, as, as one of our listeners uh, proposed. So yeah. um, it's time to spark them up uh, a little bit. So Japanese bureaucrats. No, well, especially, I mean, we're in a state where uh, the market is making its choice. And we used to have a much greater choice of gas station and convenience yeah. store in Wisconsin. And now it's quick trip and... Which is a good choice. Which is a good choice. But that's because you're talking about focusing on other things. Like it's more than, you know, it's a convenience store with gro- like that offers like fresh groceries, mm-hmm. good coffee, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the occasional potato stick in the morning. Um, potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Dick. You don't should sell knock that. Them. I'm not going to knock them. I had them yesterday. It's talking to Anna. Anna, don't knock them. Those are the no. Hash I brown just sticks. don't call them potato stick. That's a terrible name. It's a stick. It's of potato. closer to potato than anything else. Yeah, right. What am I going to call it? A hash brown lo- roll? Come on. No, yeah, not a log. <laughs> okay. Don't call it a log. I'll stay out of it. Um, and I like. I mean, they're just closer to the door than the apples, which is why I get one of each. Never. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff. What's your, uh, in case you missed it this week? Well, going on the, the later side, and this is one that I feel cannot be questioned. Mm-hmm. This is unarguably important. And it is because it's about the greatest candy bar or snack that you can grab in that, that genre, mm-hmm. the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, mm. somehow finding a way to get better. What? They have made the, pe- the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup better. If you'll allow me to read from the, the story for the first time ever. In its more than 90-year history, the Reese's brand is releasing the most extreme peanut buttery version of its iconic peanut butter cups and removing the chocolate. What? Stuffed with the same peanut butter, 100% peanut butter candy-flavored shell on the outside. So it's and you think peanut this makes butter. it better? Oh, peanut butter on. wax. Yeah, peanut that's butter and peanut butter. Gross. No. no. The essence Fantastic. of the Reese's peanut butter cup. Is the marriage of the chocolate and the peanut I butter. Yeah, will be buying these and bringing them in and eating them right in front of you, and uh, you're just going to have to deal with it. I will gladly still eat them. You- <laughs> <laughs> Slow down, saying, Jeff. In no way is this an improvement. I think this I, is Well, amazing. the chocolate is the worst part. We can all agree on that, right? Yes. Okay. But, I mean, if you've had the big Reese's, you've experienced how you can have too much of a good thing. Oh, the one of, I was bought one of those for Christmas, like a joke. Yeah. It was no joke. It yeah. was absolutely fantastic. And I didn't care that I had the chocolate smudged on my face and my yeah. fingers. I was in it. You man. were rich, rich in I big was, cups over the holiday season. I was all about it. So I don't know. The bigger question, because this is undebatably fantastic. The bigger question is, Disagree. what is the thing at the grocery store when you're checking out? What's the thing you have, you usually grab? What candy is it? Or trick or treat or whatever what was the thing you always look it's forward to? It's definitely a Snickers bar for me. Like, I'd like to say it's Altoids or Tic Tacs, but that's normally if I'm just, like, still hanging. <laughs> <laughs> David, I thought you were into, like, licorice whips and 
bit of honey. Oh, waivers. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I grew up in Burlington, Chocolate City, USA. So, I mean, if I could find an O. Henry bar, that's oh, it. Those that, are legit. Yeah, that is the okay. end of it. And I mean, same thing with like a Take Five. Like, those are good. But it's just, I mean, if we're talking impulse style, only because I was buying groceries last night and the Snickers was staring me in the face. See, but. the only way I think they could make these maybe even better is if they found out a way to put like a pretzel. No, like outside. No. That would oh, be outside. Whole. Okay, pretzel maybe. with the peanut butter. Jeez, I almost spilled, spilled the coffee all over. This is the one that gets me fired up. <laughs> no, so like, uh, <laughs> no, no, throw the laptop. Um, Stop this man. Have you had the uh, the Reese's with the peanuts and peanut uh, pretzels inside? Yes. Ah, miss another miss. Any form of the Reese's peanut butter cup is a win for me. See, they took. You know, you said Anna. You said the best thing was the peanut butter, and they just took more of that out, filled it with cheap pretzels. Oof. Damn. No, thank you. Uh, Anna, what's your uh, candy of choice? Um, so if we're talking like digging through my kids' trick-or-treat buckets, which I don't do, so don't I did. tell them I'll that because I've never done that. Um, like Baby Ruth and, um, and I like the Hershey bars with almonds. Those are my two. Yeah, Hershey bar with almonds, definitely. The Baby Ruth for me, it's just if they're around too long, I feel like that's the one candy bar that goes white the fastest. Goes white. Yeah, yeah. To- totally. It, like it's the the gray exterior because the chocolate's so thin. That must be why. Yeah, when you're talking about like digging through old Halloween candy, that's mm-hmm. the one where if you find it, you're like, okay, this one's a gamble. Mm-hmm. This one's yeah. a gamble. Um, well, sweet tooths aside, my in case you missed it this week, is the AI technology that's reanimating the dead And I really wish I would have known what your story was, Jeff. So that way we could have ended on yours. So let's get dark. Uh, Basically, the genealogy website, MyHeritage, unveiled a new technology that it's calling Deep Nostalgia. The tool uses deepfake technology that allows users to upload photos of dead relatives and quite convincingly place their faces onto footage of living, moving people using AI and algorithms. MyHeritage says that this tool allows people to, quote, Bring beloved ancestors back to life. And I say, no. It is a tool to go in the ground and spin the corpse in the coffin. (laughs) Wait, so it makes like pretend videos of people? Yeah. So you basically upload an old black and white photo of your great, great grandma. And it makes a very convincing video of the grandma looking around. You know, it's basically just kind of like look up, look down, look around, look straight at you into its murderous eyes. Yeah. And then you're supposed to somehow have some sort of connection with your heritage as a result. So it's people that you've never met is like the premise here. I mean, I think that is what they're selling. But I mean, it could be it could be anyone. I mean, you know, it's any sort of late relative. And they do stress that they're not. They can't talk. There's no audio. Mm -hmm. However, if you uh, Microsoft's technology that we were just talking about, where you upload old social media to create a chat bot, it's not crazy to think that these things would be talking eventually. And it is disturbing Mm -hmm. to me anyways. Jeff? No. (laughs) Um. No. No, thank you. Um, I think there's better applications for... This technology, this whatever you want to call it. Um, Alex just flashed me a photo of this on his phone, our video guy. Yeah, thoughts. I almost threw up. It's too, no. No. I'm out. Yeah, Yeah, and but it's already, so I already have people in my feeds that are doing this with old relatives, and I'm just like, I understand if this is helping you heal. It's a monstrosity. That's fair. Everybody's Mm -hmm. got their opinions. You know, that's for mine. I know. I'd almost think it would be... 
maybe if there was some way, like when you're in those genealogy websites, where if they could like, if there was no picture of this person and they could sort of take based on your genealogy and where this person is in the tree, this is what we think they could have looked like. Oh, like maybe. But it's worse. going beyond that. It's it's yeah. them actually giving you a message. It's I don't know too much. Yeah, yeah, no, real downer, real downer. Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> candy for lunch. Well, bringing it back up, just so you guys know, according to the USA Today, Reese's peanut butter cups have been the top Halloween candy for the last eight hundred and twenty-three years. What? Yeah, eight hundred and twenty-three years. That's science. Yep. <laughs> that sounds real. I don't. I I can't believe that. Okay, well, because at least the last couple of years, according to Family Guy, like that actually just happened like ten years ago in an accident. So that's how they created Reese's. <laughs> um, I gotta look that up. No, okay. <laughs> Everyone, pause for googling. Um, well, that brings us finally to uh, our final thoughts. And aside from your peanut butter propaganda, Jeff, what is your final thought this week? Final thought is, um, I think it's. Uh, We've been talking about this a lot lately, but I think there's going to be continued um, supply chain developments coming up. Things will be kind of interesting to see how that affects people's purchasing levels. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got some things sort of, I don't know if we should be, but they are relaxing a little bit with the pandemic. So uh, we have seen some positive economic factors. So we'll see uh, how that impacts things going forward. Okay. Uh, Anna, your final thoughts this week. Yeah, so um, for the viewer who emailed this week asking about why David has those stick horses behind him, (laughs) thank you. Because someone needed to bring this up so we could have a tough conversation about those. Like, why are they here? Does David need a conservator or some kind to, like, approve his purchases? I That, I think, might be real. Oh, yeah, yeah, that is definitely real. Mm -hmm. That is definitely real. Um, Well... For Anna and the reader, who I did have a nice conversation with, though I think he's not speaking with me anymore. Um, I would like to stress the uh, moral and emotional support, once again, that these stick horses provide, even though our plant manager moved the plant to hide him a little bit more this month or this week. Plant manager. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, it's his official second title. And they were the result of a wedding gift shop. That was stealing walk, walking sticks and stick horses. And You're just I had digging to deeper, man. You, I, just, you just spill a lot of coffee when you are riding that thing back to your desk with, with a fresh cup of I coffee. I feel like I've gotten better. Yeah. yeah. No, I've got a little more giddy up in my stick. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, no, but really, uh, I'm glad that all of my friends and relatives have stick horses as a result of me. Um, and I do check to make sure they still have them. Uh, it's good use of your stimulus story. check, David. Oh, now I have motivation for the next one. There you go. Mm-hmm. We're going to be deep in stick horses here. Another one of them sentences got me. Uh, my final thought this week, uh, as always, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. Also, send us stick horses. And uh, to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, and David at IEN.com. Sorry, Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Uh, some have suggested you could also give us a Yelp review. Um, I'm not certain the impact of that. Um, but make sure to have email the podcast in the subject line. And thank you to everybody that has responded with their feedback and uh, positive feedback, mostly. That's been encouraging. Thank you. And if you don't, keep it to yourself. For Jeff, Anna, I'm David Manti, and this has been the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.